Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim, and I'm the Community Life Pastor here at FSBC. This week, Rod is sharing from our sermon series, John's Gospel, That You May Have Life. He's sharing from John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. Enjoy. Uh, it is an exciting gospel to be preaching through, and I'm really excited to be able to bring to you the message that John has. Now, he's outlined his purpose for us, and we have it right there in that statement that says that you may have life. He gave us his own reason for writing this gospel to us. And if you have your Bible, I, I hope you bring it each week so you can kind of follow along. But in the gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, this is the reason why I've written this, that you may believe, you may know who Christ is, that he's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his identity. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he wants us to know who he is. He wants us to believe in him and what he's done and then have this gift that Christ offers us. So that's his purpose. And really, it's the purpose that we have as well as preaching through this. Because if you're a person who maybe comes to church or watches online and you're listening to this um, sermon series, you might not yet have come to a place of actually trusting in Christ as well. And so John has written this to you, that you might know who Jesus is. That's really the big question that he's answering. It's going to come out in today's message, and then you're going to see that it comes out all the way through the gospel. He's answering, who is Jesus? And he has a very emphatic answer to that, and he says it's so important that if you don't know the identity of Christ, then you don't know salvation. It's tied up in the person, who he is, and that's what we're going to look at today. You won't have, as you might remember from last week when we were talking about Zoe life, you won't have Zoe spiritual life unless you know who Jesus Christ is. And uh, that's what Christ said, when you must be born again, that's spiritual life, and that comes through faith, excuse me, in Jesus Christ. If you are someone who has not yet come to know Christ, This message is for you, but I don't want you to hear it as if you have come to know Christ, this message isn't for you. It is for you. I think we are all encouraged and nurtured in our faith when we hear the gospel preached time and time again. So I trust that everyone will be blessed through it. Now, I must disappoint some people. Um, Some of you might be thinking, wow, I really love John's gospel. I I know it really well, and I'm glad we're going to do an in-depth study on John's gospel. Well, this is not a verse-by-verse approach to how we are coming about Uh, this sermon series. It's really looking at this overarching theme that you may have life and then ask the question, where do we see it in John's gospel? And we're kind of picking and choosing the various stories that highlight that. So I know for some, they'll be really disappointed. Now, if you want that kind of level, then um, I'd encourage you buy a commentary on John's gospel. D.A. Carson's written a great commentary. It'll cost you 50 bucks, which is about half the amount of money that the average person spends on coffee in a month. So I just encourage you, man, take a month's coffee and put it into a Bible commentary and you can get your verse-by-verse study. Our goal this fall is to lay out John's purpose about who Christ is, why he came, and then give you an opportunity to respond. So on November 20th, we're going to have like a Declaration Sunday that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ and never declared it through baptism, that's our baptistry right over here. We're going to fill that with water, and we're going to baptize whoever wants to declare their, publicly their faith in Jesus Christ on November 20th. So that's where we're heading. Uh, we're going to talk about this all fall, and then we're going to call people to display their faith by being baptized. That's what happened last Sunday with this young man, Josh Peters. Um, I got to baptize him in a neighbor's swimming pool his neighbor's swimming pool, in front of his family and some of their friends, and it was an amazing experience. Josh is the son of Mike and Trisha Peters and the grandson of Carol King, if you're trying to place this young man. Um, He called me up. I love his story. He called me up right at the end of August, beginning of September. He said, Pastor Rod, you know that I've wanted to get baptized for some time. I said, yeah, 
we've tried a couple of times, Josh. He goes, well, I'm going back to university on the island, <clears throat> and I want to get baptized before I go. Are there any set Sundays coming up? And I said, no, there's not, but we can get it done. And so we did. We came to this arrangement of him being baptized in his neighbor's swimming pool. And so if that is your uh, opportunity on November 20th, I hope that you will talk to us on staff, and we would love to have many people being baptized that day. John is an evangelist. Uh, we talked about this last week, and that's kind of a big word. What does it mean to be an evangelist? Please don't picture, you know, a flashy suit with white shoes. That's not John. Um, to evangelize means to proclaim the good news, and the good news is in Jesus, and that's where the life is found. Okay, so John is an evangelist in the sense that he is proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Uh, to evangelize, by nature of the word itself, just simply means it's both the message and the con- like the content of the message and the sharing of it. So it's the action and the message going together. And, uh, you know, it'd be something like if the Vancouver Canucks ever were to win, if they ever were to win the Stanley Cup, you would share it, right? It would just be a story that you'd want to tell someone, except for all of you from Toronto. But that's the way it works, right? This is good news, and he can't keep it quiet. He's got to share it. And that's what it means to evangelize. It means to proclaim this good news. In essence, what John is saying is, I have good news for you and I can't hide it. It's about life, real life. You've been thinking bios life is the real thing. It's not the real thing. There's something more. It's Zoe life. And I know who the person is, where you go to to find that life. And that's what he's doing. He's channeling us to Jesus. Now, if you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1, 1 to 18, which is the prologue to John's gospel, most of which was read here just a moment ago. Um, And for that reason, I'm not going to step us through it verse by verse. I'm going to look at the overall prologue and go, okay, what is John trying to tell us by this introduction to the rest of the book? Because that's what a prologue is. Now, I am no grammar English major. I'm the first one to state that. But I've learned a few things. And uh, a prologue serves a purpose of introducing the things that he is going to address more clearly in the rest of the book. So he covers off a lot of the things. Now, don't tune out here because we're talking about grammar. Like I said, I'm the worst one to talk about this. I actually typed it on my paper, and the spell check came up. I spelled it wrong. (laughs) It's not E-R. It's A-R. Gram-R. You know? So there you go. All you teachers out there laughing at me. Laugh all you want. I passed high school. (laughs) But those of you who really know this stuff know how meaningful it can be to helping us understand also what the author through his structure and his language, is trying to accomplish. So the first thing that I want you to understand is that in the first 18 verses, John introduces certain words that are really unique to John. He uses words like uh, life, light, witness, world, truth, glory. These are words that are John's words that he then explains how they relate to Christ. And so those are the words that will resurface. But then, secondly, he has these phrases that come out in those first 18 verses. Phrases like the pre-existence of the logos, or the sun. In him was life. Life is light. Light rejected by darkness. Light coming into the world. Christ not received by his own. Born of God and not of the flesh. We saw his glory, the one and only Son, truth in Christ Jesus. No one has seen God except the one and only Son of God who comes from God's side. So I put there in the first column the prologue verse. Okay, this is chapter 1 of John, and it's verse 1 and 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13. You have all these phrases. And then later on in the gospel, John then takes those phrases and he starts to explain them and flesh them out. 
I didn't know that. See, you English majors out there, you're brilliant. That's how a prologue works. You introduce your topic, you introduce your themes, and then you go and explore them more fully. And that's what John's gospel is doing here. So I'll give you a couple examples. Not going to give you all of them. So in the prologue, verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then you get to John chapter 8, and there's a whole conversation around light when Jesus says, uh, he spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever uh, follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then I'll give another example, verse 14 and 18 in the prologue. It says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Again, this is John's language. And no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. So in the prologue, he brings out that there is one and only Son. And this is actually a, a particular Greek word, monogenes, which means unique. There are not two. There is no one like this. He is the one and only. And that's why it reads that way. Even though we could all be sons of God, in a sense, there is only one Son of God. So that language comes out, of course, in one of our favorite verses and most well-known. Everyone together now? No, just kidding. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, right? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the point here is just simply to see that there are words and there are phrases that John introduces in the prologue that then he carries on and fleshes out. Now, I'll give another grammatical, structural type literary device that was used here or as many believe it to be that it is uh, uh, used. It's called the chiasm or a chiastic structure. And you, maybe if you've been around the church for long enough, you've heard this before because we see these structures in scripture. It was an ancient literary device to help people understand the main idea, okay? And, and so the way it would work is your first line and your last line in the chiasm would be very important. Um, sentences to pay attention to, but then they meet in the middle for the main point, the central point that's trying to be communicated. So someone's done this work here for us to lay out how verse uh, 1 would relate, or 1 and 2, relate to verse 18. Okay, so the first one or two verses are in concept, matching the concept of verse 18. And then verse 3 is matching verse 17, and 4 and 5, verse 16, and you can just see it until it gets down to the middle with that letter F there. And that middle verse are verses 12 and 13. Through the word, by new birth and belief, we become the children of God. So someone has taken the time to show that this very likely could be John's intent, that he is trying to help us understand the importance from in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, Aligned with verse 18, that there is only one who is displayed and shown us who the Father is, and it is the one and only Son of God. And the purpose of that is so that you might know that you can become children of God. That if you understand these two points, here's the application of it. I think that that is really important. I think it's good for us to just land there for a moment and talk about verse 12 and 13, which says, Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So if you were to look at those two verses, and you see key words like receive and believe, right? And life in Jesus, that you're children of God. That really matches what John says later on in John 20, verse 31, about the purpose for writing this. 
I have written this that you might know who Jesus is and that by believing in his name that you have life. And so you can see this correlation between these verses and that verse that we already looked at. Now, as you read John's gospel, this theme is going to come out because the Jewish religious leaders in particular, but even the Jewish people in general, would have thought that they were the children of God. That's how they were referred to, the nation of Israel, the children of God. And why were they the children of God? Because we're descendants of Abraham. We are his people by bloodline. Not only that, we have the law of Moses and we adhere to the law of Moses. So this would have been the understanding that John is going to say, hold on a second, in this gospel that I'm writing, where really heaven is being, like, um, you know, it's being revealed. The clouds are being pulled away and we're looking into a heavenly understanding of what the life of Christ is all about. You're going to understand something about the spiritual world and it doesn't come through a bloodline. You're going to understand that there are truly those who are children of God and those who are not. And you're going to understand that you're mistaken if you think that you're a child of God because you're basing it on the wrong thing. John is going to tell us, you must know who Jesus Christ is if you're going to truly be a child of God. So that's why this is kind of important. It's it's pointing us to something that mattered for them. And it matters for us. I mean, it matters for them. I don't know if you've ever wondered about this verse 13. I know for sure I did, trying to figure out. And in different Bibles, it's worded in different ways, right? Um, But here in the NIV, children born not of natural descent. Okay, I think I get that. Nor of human decision. What's he getting at there? Because... Did I not decide to follow Christ? Is that what he means by that? Nor of a husband's will. Um, Understand this. Those three statements are making the exact same point. (laughs) It's biological, okay? (laughs) Not by natural descent. Nor a human decision to go and procreate. Nor by a husband's will that says, hey, honey. Okay, all three of those are making the same point. That's not how spiritual life is transferred It is not transferred through the natural biological process of a parent having a child. And if the parent was a Christian, then the child is a Christian. If the parent was a Jewish person who uh, adhered to Abraham, and I'm the people of Abraham, that you also now by nature are a person of Abraham, if you don't believe what Abraham believed. And that's what John's gospel is going to do. It's going to challenge these people. He's going to confront them head on and say, you think you're children of God. Because you think Abraham's your father, but you don't have the faith of Abraham. If you believed what Abraham truly believed, you would believe who Jesus Christ is because Abraham longed for this day. Abraham longed for the Son of God to come into this world and for salvation to be fully expressed to people. And so John is going to challenge them in their thinking. And the reason why I want to stop here for a moment is I think we need to be challenged as well. It is easy for us to think that we are saved because, well, I grew up going to church, right? I did. Every week the church was open, and every weekday the church was open, our family was there. And so you can kind of almost think that I'm a Christian because I always went to church. I'm a Christian because I've always believed. You know, language like that. And it's like, well, in a sense, I get it, but hold on a second. I'm not a Christian because my parents are Christians, and I'm not a Christian because my grandparents are Christians, and I'm not a Christian because I go to church every week, and I'm not a Christian if I can answer all of those Sunday school answers to the questions that get asked. I'm only a Christian when I understand who Jesus Christ is, why he came, and what he did for me, and I personally put my faith and trust in him. So as important it was for the Jewish people or any other person at that time who was trusting in anything other than Jesus, to be confronted with how salvation comes, that true spiritual life comes through 
receiving and believing in Jesus Christ, now you become children of God. It's as important for us today to know this as well. Getting back to the prologue part of John's gospel, some theologians um, say it's possible that that chiastic structure was intentional, but what is known for sure is that verse 12 and 13 is the emphasis of the result or the application of the greatest truth that John is trying to help us understand. And it comes in verse... Oh, that's the question I was going to ask you. Have you? You need to. Baptism, November 20th. You get to show the world you're a follower of Christ. It comes in verse 1 and 14, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Whoa, that's a lot to take in, John. And then, well, who is this word? Well, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Okay. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. To this point, we don't have a name. We know that there was this being called the Word. We know that John has just told us that that word was with God, but that word was God. We're going to talk about that in a moment. And then we're told that this being became flesh, took on humanity, walked amongst us. And that the glory that he radiated was grace and truth. But it's not until verse 17 and 18 where we're given the name. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So you can see how as the um, prologue, as you read it through, You gain clarity. We start with this being the word. We learn a bit about this being the word. Then we find out that this word becomes flesh. And then we find out that this word, who is full of grace and truth, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, The main aha here is to understand what John is saying in verse 1 and verse 14. If, If you can truly understand what's going on there, then it leads you to the application of verse 12 and 13, where you become children of God. Now, that's, that's my, my whole sermon, really, in a nutshell. And we could end it there, but I want to make sure you get your money's worth, so we're actually going to just go back and step through it a little bit more. Because it's still confusing as to, well, who is this word? This here is just to connect the dot that if you had your Bible and if you had a pen or a note, a highlighter or something, you could highlight verse 1 verse 14, and verse 17. If you were ever trying to help anyone else understand who Jesus is and how, why he came, those three verses right there linked together give you that ability. And so I, I put it up there for you <clears throat> just to be able to see how that flows. The main point of John's prologue, excuse me, folks. is what that statement says, this word who was with God and was God became flesh, lived among us, and that person is none other than Jesus Christ. In the beginning, what comes to your mind when you hear in the beginning? I think for most of us, we go right to Genesis 1-1 because that's very familiar. That's where the Jewish Bible began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of anything that had ever been created in the beginning of time and space, before there was anything, there was the Word. The Word existed. There was never a time that the Word did not exist eternally as God, with God. 
That's what you need to grasp. The word here in Greek is logos. I'm not a Greek scholar, but this isn't too hard to understand, and it's, it's a lot preached on, and I want to at least touch on it because it's important. John uses a word, <clears throat> logos, that he never brings out again in the rest of his gospel. And many people wonder why. We're going to talk about that. Um, the idea of John being an evangelist is that he wants to try to capture as wide a listening audience as possible. So whether you were a Greek person, Roman Gentile, Greek-believing, pagan, whatever, or Jewish, he's using a word that is going to be well-known. It's not to us. I mean, we hear this and go, what do you mean the word was with God? What is the word, right? Like, it, it, just, it doesn't resonate with us. But it does for that audience. It means a lot to them. In fact, if I was just to make it a very simple um, kind of understanding between a Greek thought and a Jewish thought, in Greek thought, it is linked to reason. Um, you know, our English word logic would come out of logos, the same kind of idea. There was various schools of Greek thought that had nuances to it, but overall it meant this, that they looked around creation, and they go, huh, you plant that, and it grows, you get a fruit, out of the fruit, you get a seed, you plant that, and they go, there's order. There's something here that we can't deny, that there's some being, some force, something behind what we call order. Uh, the rational principle was one of their terms that they used. But it has to do with reason. It has to do with order. It has to do with the way in which they looked at creation and couldn't deny something is there. But that something in their mind was not personal. <clears throat> it was always impersonal. You know, like Star Wars and the force be with you, right? That kind of idea, very impersonal. And so for the Greek listener or reader of this, when John says that the Logos was with God and the Logos was God, and then the Logos became flesh, that's when they go, huh? He became a human, dwells amongst us. Okay, this is a personal being. We only ever saw, thought of it as kind of like a force. That's not too far off what a lot of people think today, right? You just ask them, they go, well, I believe in the Big Bang, or I believe in the multiverse. Well, how did we get here? Well, the multiverse burst our, verse, our universe. Really? That, that's how it happened? Yeah, it's just this impersonal force out there, right? But they don't necessarily land in the place of saying, no, that's a personal being. That's a, the divine creator of the universe can be known. And that's what John is saying. So those Greek listeners are going, whoa, this is new. To the Jewish person, they're quite familiar with the idea of the word because it's God's spoken word. When God spoke, he created. When God spoke, he revealed. The prophets were revealing only what God was telling them about who he was so that people might know. That's what it means to reveal, to make known. God makes himself known through the spoken word. And then, of course, through deliverance, through acts of power. Um, God releases the nation of Israel, nations rise and nations fall, judgment, these are all done by the word of God. So the Jewish person has a really good understanding about word as it relates to power, as it relates to God. What's going to be new for them is understanding that this word was eternally something other than and the same as God. And it, this being comes into human flesh well, that's going to rattle the Jewish mindset. And of course, we're referring to the Trinity here, and John is touching on that. We'll get into that a little bit in a moment. But for them, they would understand that God's word was his power. But now they're understanding that this power of God is personal, and he lives, and he's come into our world. The word was with God, and the word was God in his very nature. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
What did they make of John's insight and what do we make of it? It's maybe a bit complicated and I don't want to lose you here. But God, in John writing about the word, God is disclosing who he is. How would God make himself known to us if he were to come into our sphere? I mean, Moses said, show me your glory. Moses had seen a lot of God. His face glowed, right? People are like, man, Moses put a veil on, you're glowing. We don't want to look at that. Like it's freaking us out because it's so powerful, it's so other. Moses knew a lot about the presence of God. And yet he said to him, show me your glory. What did he want? He wanted to see what God was like. He wanted to know what God is like. And so to understand what John is trying to say, he's like, if you want to know what God is like, he discloses himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The word become flesh. It's his self-expression to humanity in human form. Hebrews 1 puts it like this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. I mean, he is full of grace and truth as the Father is full of grace and truth. He radiated that glory and he radiated to the nth degree of going to the cross and dying there and rising again to life that he might be the life giver. That's what it means. The glory of the sun is the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. What would God look like if he were ever to be human? Jesus, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You want to know what God looks like? Looks like Jesus, full of grace and truth. The word was with God, and the word was God in his very nature, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, which is written by the Apostle Paul, picks up on this theme. There's many different passages in the New Testament I could go to, but this one just, as you can see by the highlighted words there, really captures what I think John is trying to introduce us to in his prologue. Who is the word? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being, I'm so sorry folks, I don't know what's got me today. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's been translated into English in various ways because it's, it's hard to grasp the true meaning of it. But don't misread it. For many, many years, I misread it. I misread it in the sense that, oh, he couldn't grasp equality with God. This is not how it's written at all. The idea is that the equality that he had with God from eternity past, he was willing to come into human form, still being in very nature. God did not feel like he had to promote it. That's why he came unto his own, and his own did not recognize him. Why? Because the glory aspect of who God was in Jesus Christ was not being revealed in humanity. He was limited in that regard. So when it says here, Consider that this one, this Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't leverage that. He didn't come into this world and say, I'm that one, I'm that one, I'm that one. I kind of actually got to qualify that a little bit. People were veiled to see his deity, but when he spoke and when he did miracles, he spoke as one who equaled himself with God. That's why in John 8, we'll take a look at that. Before Abraham was born, I am, right? That's a statement of God from Exodus chapter 3. He would say things like, your sins are forgiven. He would have power over nature. Only God has power over nature. Only God can forgive sins, right? He raised Lazarus to life, and he himself was raised to life. All of these are evidences of the nature of who Jesus Christ was. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
being found in appearance as a man. So you have Jesus, who in very nature is God, being found in appearance as a man. And what did he do with that? What did he do with his glory becoming human? He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. That's why he's our savior. That's why we can't not worship him. There are people who are in certain groups, religious circles, that do not worship Jesus. We cannot do anything other than worship Jesus. And when we're worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping God because he is God. The real God of all creation became a real person in creation. And we call this the incarnation. And at Christmas this year for Advent, if you like this theme, we're going to take five weeks and talk about the incarnation. And so we're going to get more of that at that time. Jesus is God in human form, and all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. This is the big aha of John's prologue. If we can grasp that, the identity of Jesus Christ, then we can understand how he is our Savior, and then we would know why we would ever believe and trust in him and receive that eternal life. Jesus is the God-man. He's not half human and half God. He's not a fusion of two different natures, a nature that's divine and a nature that's huge. That's human. He is 100% God in his nature and 100% human in his humanity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John is saying you need to know who he is. Why? Why is it so important? What does it matter? Why not just think he's another prophet? Why not just think he's a really good teacher like the majority of the world thinks? That his moral standards were really high and they want to praise him for it. But the claims that Jesus Christ made and the claims we're going to read in John leaves no other position than you either believe him to be who he says he was, God, or you write him off as a crazy idiot. There's no middle ground. But a lot of people talk as if there's a middle ground, but Jesus doesn't leave middle ground. John doesn't leave middle ground. He's saying in this prologue right from the beginning, that one that you know as Jesus Christ, and you saw him and you wondered, was he Elijah? Was he a prophet? Who was he? Was he some angelic being with special powers? What, 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 what? And John comes along and says, he was none other than the word who has dwelt in eternity past as God for eternity. He's the one who created everything. And he's the one who's come into his creation. And in coming into his creation, he did the ultimate thing that anyone would ever do, laid down his life. And he did it for all of humanity, that by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. And he rose to life again, that he might be the life giver. And that's what John's message is. And we're going to see that fleshed out again and again and again. If you don't know the king, then you don't get in the kingdom. That's why John says this is so important. You need to know who the king is, and the king is Jesus. And you know, when we know him to be our king, we sing these worship songs from our heart. They're not just words. I know the feelings aren't always there. We come into this worship center in our weeks and whatnot have been busy, but we come here and we sing those songs and we mean it from our heart because Jesus is our king. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we bow in your presence, we are grateful for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in this world to rescue sinners. I am so thankful for your message. Christianity is not about some other being coming to save us. It's not about a set of rules or principles to follow. You yourself came into humanity to save us, and that is an unbelievable miracle. Thank you so much for Jesus. We do worship him today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.